bum bum bottom 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 bum
That's right. One of our strangest episodes and one of my most cherished memories, because yes, I had laryngitis. I could not actually vocalize my thoughts. So Lisa did the entire interview and we sat on his balcony while you asked him questions about his new film and I just soaked it all in. It didn't have very much to do with uh, comic books, though he did comment on your Swamp Thing shirt. It was a Swamp Thing shirt. It was indeed a Bernie Wrightson. But it was such like a weird, surreal situation just to be sitting there talking to Jay from Jay and Silent Bob. In his hotel room that was like littered with Legos. And we didn't have a Patreon feed yet. Nope. And so we're like, well, this conversation has to go somewhere. We want to share it with the CBCC listeners. So we'll just drop it in the main feed. And it's still there, you guys. So if you want to comb back through. Uh, oh, no. I'm going to put links in the show notes. Oh, uh, Brad's doing the work for you. You can listen to that very awkward conversation. There I is don't think a point. it's that awkward. I think it is really sweet. I think Jason was incredibly nice. You did great. You picked up the slack. Oh, man. I had so many handwritten notes yeah, that yeah. filled an entire notebook page. And at one point, in the conversation, like he glanced over at the insanity that was on my paper and he looked terrified. No, I, I think you're, you were projecting in that. He did comment on how many notes you brought into that interview. Uh, and I think you were just very nervous because you love to snooch to the booch. And, <laughs> I do. And I had never done an interview all by myself before. Was that true? Is that your first solo interview? Yes. Well, you did gangbusters and, you know, our listeners can be the final judges of that because, again, click on those show notes. And you, then you can watch the film we were talking about, Madness in the Method. His directorial debut, which has, I think, the final Stanley cameo. Or if it's not the final because Marvel like shot a whole bunch of them that, so that they could have cameos all the way up through Endgame. But I believe it's the final one that Lee recorded mm -hmm. in his own timeline. That is true. And it also has... Kevin Smith in it. Right, of and course it does. And look at her, everything comes full circle. All, all comes back for full circle. Lisa, what was your relationship with Kevin Smith before reading Green Arrow Quiver? Oh, I've, I've seen a handful of his movies. I like mall rats and I like elements of dogma and stuff. But what I really love Kevin Smith for is for the panels that he does Closing out Saturday at San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah. It's one of those like quirky San Diego Comic-Con traditions where he's not even necessarily promoting anything. Occasionally he is. But uh, just to close out the day, a bunch of people line up and go to the big microphone and ask him a question. And he can just spin a yarn. I love listening to that guy talk. Yeah, you're lucky if two people ask a question. Usually it's one person asks a question and then an hour later the panel is over. Whenever I think of him, I always think of him telling the story. And I think this was on a podcast. I don't know if necessarily it was on a panel. But he uh, he tells the story of the first time he and his wife smoked pot together. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was sitting on the can saying, it's ropey, it's ropey. <laughs> um, you're just going to have to listen to it, you guys. I also really enjoy his podcasts. Like um, anytime he's inter interviewing somebody who I think 
is really interesting. He always gets like the juiciest stories out of them. One of my all time favorite Grant Morrison interviews occurs in the early days of Fat Man on Batman. That is an epic conversation. And every Morrison fan and every Batman fan should listen to it. I also cherish his interview with Mark Tyler Nobleman about mm. Bill Finger, because yeah. I had never heard of Bill Finger before that interview. And after that, I was like, I'm on board. I want to champion Bill Finger, too. Yeah. And then, you know, that led us to watching the documentary Batman and Bill, which is on Hulu. Also worth your time, guys. I think the number one thing I just love about Kevin Smith is that he's like a celebrator. Yes. He is not a person who is too cool for enthusiasm. Yeah, he's all passion. And I think that he inspires that in others. And I think that's what makes him such a great interviewer is that other person feels so loved. They feel so um, affirmed in his space that they just want to share. Yeah, and part of his mythology is that he was a fan first who then went and created out of that fandom, and that's how we got Clerks. Uh, I, I was not actually there at the beginning. I didn't see Clerks until I saw Mallrats, and the reason I saw Mallrats is because of that crazy, gorgeous Drew Struzan poster with Brody standing in a Frank Frazetta-like pose, King of the Nerds. And then in the tiny corner, there was this little box promising a Stan Lee cameo, and I was like, Stan the man, Lee, I gotta see this movie. And on that front, it did not disappoint. As far as the Stan Lee cameo goes, I like I think it's one of the best. And Mallrats made me an instant Smith fan. And for a good long time, I was obsessed with his movies. And during that period of obsession, what does he go and do? He gets into comic books, my other favorite medium for stories. In 1998, Oni Press started publishing View Askew comic books, View Askew being Smith's movie universe. And this caught the attention of Joe Quesada, who just took over the Marvel Knights imprint, which took low profile characters like the Punisher, Black Panther, and Daredevil and delivered gritty, more quote unquote adult comics. With Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti on art and Smith on script, they unleashed an epic, strange, very weird, and revolutionary Daredevil storyline called Guardian Devil. If we ever cover Matt Murdock and Karen Page on this show, that book will get a whole episode for sure. In 2001, Smith went to DC Comics and wrote Green Arrow Quiver with Phil Hester and Andy Parks on art. And as we're going to discuss with this episode's main topic, Smith had to accomplish a lot with this book. If Daredevil was slightly unpopular at the time, Green Arrow was the Invisible Man. Oliver Queen was dead and in the ground, and it was on Smith to resurrect him and nab some massive sales while doing so, and shock, gasp, wow, he did just that. It is impressive considering how much he had to overcome with Green Arrow and all of his closest compatriots, besides just Green Arrow being dead. We gotta remember that before The Longbow Hunters, there was no Green Arrow solo title. And he only achieved that popularity when he went down in Gritty and Mike Grell came aboard and did a Killing Joke, Dark Knight Returns version of Oliver Queen. And through the success of The Longbow Hunters, we get this massive solo title that stretches off and doesn't really touch the outer DC universe world in any way. But when Mike Grell left, 
it was time to bring Oliver and Dinah back into the fold of the greater DC universe, you know, doing spandex stuff. So there had to be this, like, domestication of the lone wolf thing. Yes. But then, like, from what I can gather, there has been a lot of wild stuff happening between the Longbow Hunters and Quiver in the greater DC universe. Absolutely. Like Hal Jordan, he went a little crazy during this thing called Zero Hour, where he obtained the cosmic power of Parallax and tried to remake the universe. Ollie ends his reign by shooting an arrow through his chest. Hal dies and becomes the new incarnation of the Spectre, an avenging undead spirit who gets up to no good in Quiver, which I love, love, love. But after Zero Hour, however, Ollie hunts down an eco-terrorist group called Eden Corps. He ultimately sacrifices his life, preventing a bomb from detonating over Metropolis, but Ollie gets obliterated into smithereens despite Superman's presence. Boo, Superman. <laughs> Boo. Faster than a speeding bullet in my butt. After Oliver Queen's death, Connor Hawk is revealed to be the long lost son of Ollie and he takes on his father's mantle. So yeah, when Quiver first launched, some were taken aback by it. To return Ollie to life, Smith chose to get really nerdy with the continuity. And it's not the friendliest book for new readers, but even though I didn't quite understand all the details of this read and I was very happy to dive in to Wikipedia to figure it all out, I did find that Smith gave me just enough to appreciate the drama. It feels very Kevin Smith to me to be able to like poke fun at how over the top and ridiculous comic book mm. continuity is while still managing to be completely reverential to it. Yeah, I think it extends from his self-deprecating humor, which maybe is a little too defensive at times, but also like, how can you not relate and recognize mm. it as something that you also experience as a comic book obsessive? So yeah, I definitely enjoy his take on Green Arrow Quiver and the massive DC continuity. But before we can really get into this storyline, which I'm so excited to do, we got to talk about our love expert, Lisa, who's helping us out this week and how's it all going to work? Our love expert for Dinah Lance and Oliver Queen is Megan Lundgren, LMFNT, Woofed. licensed marriage and family therapist through her book, The Relationship Book for New Couples, Proven Strategies to Nurture Your Connection and Build a Long Lasting Bond, published in May 2021 from Rockridge Press. The intention of the book outlined in the introduction is to provide evidence-based therapeutic strategies for couples seeking to deepen their level of commitment and build essential relationship skills. In our last session, we observed the events of the Longbow Hunters through the lens of chapter three entitled Our Beliefs and Values. We noticed that by avoiding discussions about their differing values and expectations for the relationship, they've been creating this gulf of misunderstanding between them. In this session, we need to gently guide Dinah and Ollie toward having these tough conversations using one of the strategies from chapter six, conflict. Too often, we think of conflict in a relationship as a marker of dysfunction, but conflict is necessary to address the dynamic needs of the individuals and in defining and redefining their us-ness, that third identity in the relationship. By avoiding conflict, Dinah and Oliver's relationship has stagnated, leaving Ollie yearning for signs of a deepening relationship like marriage and kids, and Dinah keeping Oliver at arm's length. In a way, Oliver wants to raise the stakes 
And Dinah wants to avoid the stakes. But conflict doesn't have to mean a fight with two tempers spiraling out of control. The strategy we're going to use, the four steps, will help them regulate their emotions and avoid the more inflammatory, destructive coping mechanisms so they can finally address some of those deeper feelings at play. According to Lundgren, the four steps technique is powerful stuff. This is the method of communication she turns to most in her practice. So I think it could do wonders for Black Canary and Green Arrow. So here we go, the four steps. Step one, say how you feel using the most vulnerable language possible. Conflict begins with an emotional trigger. So name the flare up. Hmm. And I feel angry, upset, frustrated is not going to cut it. What are you afraid of at that moment? What is the emotion that arises from that fear? Lundgren gives these examples. Unworthy, hopeless, unwanted, unappreciated, insignificant, alone, disrespected, powerless, inadequate, unknown, out of control, defective, unable to measure up to expectations, or devalued. So we've sort of discussed this technique in the past about recognizing and naming out loud a flare-up. Like, hey, Lisa, I'm feeling a flare-up, but this is asking us to take it one step further. Like, it's not just enough to say that I'm feeling a flare-up, I'm agitated at this moment because of something that you have done. I need, to, I need to address why I'm agitated. What is actually making me agitated? So you're asking the agitated person to get analytical. And by like thinking about the emotion objectively, you're kind of stepping out of yourself because you can't be inside the emotion and see it. I mean, it's just like, it just requires a lot of mental strength to do that because usually when you are angry and in the middle of a flare up, going one step beyond just naming it can be difficult. So this is something that you would have to really practice. That's true. And that relates directly to step two. So step two is call yourself out for the destructive coping mechanism that you want to take or have already taken. So you may have gotten agitated and lashed out in one way or, or another. So this is your opportunity to name the emotion, and then name the coping mechanism that you have taken or, or okay. are about to take. Got it. So Lundgren gives four examples of the most common coping mechanisms. So there is blaming others, my emotion is your fault, shaming yourself, my emotion is my fault because I'm a bad person, taking control of the situation, because I'm having an emotion, everybody's going to stop doing what they're doing and do what I say. Right. Or withdrawing from the situation, going like, I can't take it anymore, I'm leaving. That's my favorite. <laughs> By naming the mechanism, you can more mindfully avoid the knee-jerk reaction so you can choose a form of communication that is more constructive. So you would say like, ugh, I'm so frustrated and this is your fault. Then you would go, oh man, I'm feeling powerless right now, and my temptation is to blame you. And then you can move from there to step three. And step three is? Step three is name what is true about the current conflict. Emotional flare-ups have the feeling of being summative. Like, in that instant, you're telling yourself the story of every time you've had that same emotion, 
therefore making that emotion feel more true. It's like the emotion is building a case for itself. But just because something feels emotionally true or has been emotionally true in the past doesn't mean that it's true in the current circumstances. Mm. Naming what is true will ground the conflict in the present so that you can address the current situation rather than tackling a lifetime of insecurities. So let's go with the example I used before. Like, I'm feeling powerless right now, and my temptation is to blame you, but the truth is we want to collaborate and make a great product or mm. whatever our, our argument is about. I'm assuming it's about the podcast. It's always about podcast. <laughs> so then there's step four. And step four is to respond rather than react. By responding, you are mindfully choosing what to say rather than letting your habits choose for you. Mm, yeah. Be as motivated to understand what your partner is thinking and feeling as you are to express precisely what you are thinking and feeling. When you move on to finding workable solutions, be creative rather than competitive. Together, find what will best serve your us-ness rather than trying to convince your partner to meet your needs in the specific way that you're asking. Right, right, sure. So now that we have the four steps under our belt, I'd like to quickly revisit the bedroom conversation from the Longbow Hunters and how it could have sounded using the four steps. Oh yeah, let's do it. So I've actually written out a little script, Brad. So you could be Oliver, or do you want to be Oliver or Dinah? Oh, well, I mean, I, uh, I would rather be Dinah because oh. she's the cool one. Okay, then I'll be Oliver. Okay, let me get into character. Arrows, arrows, arrows. Dinah? Yes? When you tell me you don't want to marry me, I feel unvalued and unworthy and I'm tempted to shame myself. But the truth is, we have a home together. We are building a life together. And that tells me that you want to be with me. I just find myself searching for ways to feel closer to you in our relationship. Oliver, when I think of myself starting a family with you, I begin to feel panicked and out of control. And I want to pull away and withdraw from you. But the truth is, we have moved in together because we have a continuing desire to be with each other. Oh, yeah, they do. They like to do a lot of voting. <laughs> I avoid being closer to you because I need assurance that you're not going to do something brash and unpredictable in a way that deprives me of my autonomy. So throughout Quiver, after writing this, mm. this little script, mm. I noticed that this argument plays Reoccurs. and replays throughout this storyline. I'm a little sad that that's the end of the script. I was ready to do a whole movie with you like that. Oh, yeah? yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know it would end in a very rated R scene. Oh, X-rated. <laughs> that's right. We'll carry that. We'll put a pin in that for later. Oh, wink, wink. Role play. As we move through Quiver, <laughs> how do I transition from that? I don't know. Good luck. Good go. Go, 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 go. As we move through Quiver, I'd like to look for opportunities to apply the four steps so we can get through the tough conversations that Black Canary and Green Arrow should be having to get to the next phase of their relationship, whatever that may be. But before we can do that, Lisa, we got to do some words of affirmation. No, 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 no
For first-time listeners, we should explain exactly what the words of affirmation portion of the show is. These are our way of giving back to our new and upgrading Patreon subscribers. We curate and use these ourselves, and we're more than happy to pass them on to you. These particular affirmations come from the Huffington Post's 35 Affirmations That Will Change Your Life. Bold talk, HuffPost. Affirmations are all about bold talk. Where would we be? How could we change Fair. the course of our life and our mind chemistry without bold talk? So we do have to get in a tranquil state of mind, though. Okay. So let's take a deep breath. <sighs> Jennifer Freitag. Your body is healthy, your mind is brilliant, and your soul is tranquil. Dano Cosmic. Your future is an ideal projection of what you envision now. Matt Shatroff. You radiate beauty, charm, and grace. Zach Quaintance. You acknowledge your own self-worth. Your confidence is soaring. Yeah. <sighs> And of course, uh, even if you are not one of those patrons receiving affirmation, you can take their affirmations and apply it to yourself. Uh, these are affirmations, like we said, that we use every day. We put them up on our little affirmation board and we find great strength through them. So we give them to all our listeners as well. But they are dedicated to these patrons who help this show keep on keeping on. And now we move into session with Dinah and Ollie. And to discuss their relationship this week, we are using Kevin Smith's Green Arrow, consisting of the storylines Quiver and The Sound of Violence, which appear in Green Arrow Volume 3, Issues 1 through 15, which were published by DC Comics between February 2001 and July 2002. Obviously, it was written by Kevin Smith, penciled by Phil Hester, inked by Andy Parks, colored by Guy Major and James Sinclair, lettered by Sean Connaught, and it features incredible covers by Matt Wagner. Here is the plot taken from the DC Comics website. The original Green Arrow, Oliver Queen, re-emerges after years of being assumed dead. But many people, including Black Canary, his ex-lover, Arsenal, his ex-partner, Connor Hawk, his son and temporary successor, and Batman the Dark Knight detective, want to know how Green Arrow survived the airplane explosion and where he has been. Using strong characterization and engaging dialogue, comic and screenplay writer and movie director Kevin Smith, Clerks, Dogma, Batman Cacophony, successfully resurrects one of the world's classic heroes. Assume dead. Actually dead. Totally dead. And comes back. Yeah, because the nature of his death, because he exploded into a million tiny bits, Kevin Smith has to do some serious, magical, heavy lifting to resurrect Oliver Queen. And Quiver starts off with a series of interludes focusing in on the supporting cast to really sell the fact that this is not a simple case of like, oh, you thought he blew up in that plane, but he actually didn't. No, he totally blew up in that plane. 
And now let's grapple with the fact that Oliver is no longer with us. Let's hang out with Batman and Superman. Let's hang out with Roy Harper, his old sidekick, Speedy, now Arsenal. Let's hang out with Dinah. Let's go see Connor Hawk, who has like collapsed on the grave of Oliver and has to give up being Green Arrow because he can't do it without Oliver in the world. And each of them are processing their grief differently. Like, Roy has done the thing where he's decided just to remember the good times and the good life lessons he got. I think from Oliver, Oliver would be very happy with the way that he's reflecting. Like of the three reflections from these people, Oliver would be like, yeah, I'm, this is what I want to see from Roy. Yeah, Roy uh, in his narration is talking about like from Oliver Queen, I really learned patience. He taught me the way of the bow and how like you have to, that timing is everything when making the right moves in life. But to me, I feel like that's completely con contrary to a lot of the, like the way Oliver Queen lives the rest of his life outside of being an archer. Right. Uh, like I, I feel like that's a little bit of revisionist history. Yeah, I on think so too. Agreed. Roy's part, where Connor, like, in his timeline, he's just met Oliver Queen. He had a dad for the first time, and then to have him wrenched away in such a dramatic fashion, he is having this hard time wrapping his mind about, around it. So he goes to the monastery, and and we see him praying to God the Father, like. Please, God, take the suffering away from me. Like, s somehow cure this, like, incomplete feeling that I have where it's like, I didn't have a dad before, and I was kind of fine. But then I did have a dad, and now I don't have a dad again, and it's not fine. I Connor can't cope. is going through trauma. The, that, that space, it's a void, and he, he is in, you know, this is a loaded word in DC Comics, but he is in crisis, where Roy is grieving in, in the way that you would grieve for a father you've had a long life with, because Roy has had that long life with Oliver, where Connor has not. He just found happiness with Oliver, and then it was ripped from him, whereas Roy has probably been preparing himself his entire life because that is the life of a vigilante. That's, like, Roy has the same concept that Dinah had in The Longbow Hunters. Like, if you stay in this game, sooner or later, you're gonna be taken off the chessboard, where Connor hasn't even had the opportunity to do those vigilante logistics. This reminds me of our conversation about grief with Martian Manhunter and Mariah, where we had the healing milestones and derailers from mm -hmm. the center of complicated grief. Like, I feel like Roy has been able to accept his grief and allow it to find a place in his life, where I feel like Connor is trapped within one of the derailers where he's repeatedly imagining scenarios where either his father didn't return back into his life or maybe Oliver Queen didn't die. So the at like he's not going to be able to move on with his life until he resolves that and he accepts that he can't really change anything. Yeah, and it's kind of unfortunate that he's robbed of resolving that on his own because uh, Oliver does come back to life. But before we can talk about that, let's, let's talk about Dinah and how she's dealing with Oliver's absence. Well, I think she's dealing with another one of the derailers, which is 
an anger or bitterness that she can't resolve or let go of. So we see her reminisce about her relationship with Oliver Queen, and it is full of anger and bitterness. And she has folded this into her narrative where she is a woman who was tricked and manipulated by Oliver Queen. And she's bringing that into her vigilante work. So when we see her, she's actually in Gotham and she's looking in the window at a woman who is washing dishes and it triggers a memory for her. And she goes like, I bet you that woman didn't eat off of the dishes that right. she is washing. Yeah, and so we're introduced to her feelings regarding Oliver through her frustrations with her relationship. So where they parted, they were not in a good headspace to the point where, you know, when she's on patrol and she sees a woman washing dishes, she imagines her being as frustrated as she was whenever she found herself in a similar situation. And the memory that we see is her doing dishes, Oliver coming up behind her, her chastising him for not doing any dishes himself, always leaving it for her to do, to fall into this domestic role. You don't even do any cooking. And he's like, well, I, you know, I boiled up some ramen noodles. And she's like, you call that cooking? And then he distracts her by some canoodling. Mm -hmm. You know, he starts kissing on her neck. He's like, I'll show you cooking. And he ends that argument by starting off sex. And I think this is such an excellent opportunity to take one of the horniest filmmakers around, Kevin Smith, and marry him with one of the horniest couples in comics, Dinah and Oliver. What I think is so sad about this scene is that like from a certain perspective, it's extremely cute. Like they're teasing each other and they're being playful. And yes, her like exasperation about him not doing his own dishes is frustrating for her, but then it becomes a scene of she's spraying him with the sink and he's going down on her. And like, I think that if she had resolved her grief or if she was in a, a different place, she could look at that and go like, oh, Oliver, you know, he, he was so tough at times, but we, we really did enjoy each other. But instead she goes like, see, he, tricked me, he used me. He's the kind of, this this moment of him not doing his own dishes is indicative of the, um, the hurt and the confusion he created in my life. Right, and this is why I love Kevin Smith in this storyline, because he takes something that we expect from him. We expect sequences like this. The guy who made Clerks and Mallrats is going to bring this to Green Arrow and he's gonna crank the sexuality up to 11, but he uses it as this painful wound. So this very cute scene, this very silly, sexy, cute scene done in flashback, done in a memory, done after the man going down on the lady is dead, is actually a really painful sex scene. And it triggers a bunch of emotions and she goes back through the narrative of their relationship and she goes like, we did have these good, exciting times, but ultimately it 
it led to hurt and betrayal and infidelity. Right. And so through her flashback, it's very different than Roy Harper's collage. Through her flashback, we see it punctuated with images of Oliver kissing other women and having children with other women. Yeah, we see a scene with him and... Shadow. Shadow holding his child. And then later we see an image of him and Marianne, which is a scene that many consider like the end of their relationship. What Smith is doing here is establishing for Connor and Dinah in particular, less so for Roy, but they need resolution. They need Oliver to come back. So him coming back is going to be a gift for these two at the very least. I disagree because I think that the kind of resolution that both Connor and Dinah need is a resolution that is independent of Oliver Queen. Like that's what grief is for, to resolve the emotions for yourself. I agree with that. And and in a real world situation, people have to resolve grief on their own. But I think the reason that these scenes are being written this way is to justify his return. I think this is Smith justifying or trying to uh, explain narratively why we need Oliver back in these people's lives. I don't think so. I think that he's introducing this the their different modes of grief as a way of complicating <laughs> Oliver Queen's return. Well, well, yeah, and yes, I mean, it is a very complicated return and much more so... Uh, well, we'll get into like the specifics of who this Oliver is as he's coming back. Uh, but the method in which they bring him back makes it very dramatically juicy. But I do think that at the end of this storyline, Oliver Queen's resurrection is this life raft for them all to get on. I'll I'll give you that for Connor, having Oliver Queen back does enrich his life. What he really wanted from his father was more time. And for Oliver to come back, he does get that. But I feel like what Dinah actually needs is to feel empowered and independent and separate from Oliver Queen. Like she's angry at him because he, she felt like he interfered with her autonomy. And I think that she she needs to feel in charge of her decisions. And now with Oliver, like, and yes, in this particular scene, she's still processing anger and pain. But I think that if she continued to move through the milestones of grief and forgive herself for falling in love with someone like Oliver Queen so that she can then look back with a more bittersweet lens. Like, I think that she would be in an immensely better place. Yes, I agree with you. I agree with you. And she's denied that because this is a Green Arrow comic. And I also think that she's denied that based on how Quiver itself resolves its magical angle. And we can put a pin in that for now. Now, the reason Dinah is looking through this window is because she's on a stakeout and the woman doing the dishes is the wife of this abusive criminal. So Dinah goes in and begins kicking the abuser's butt. And as she's doing it, she's remembering this huge argument she had that 
she referred to as the great Sherwood Flores semantics argument of 97. And she said that it was a fight so, so terrible that they had to sleep in separate rooms that night. And so Oliver was off on this tear about how society spends too much time cleaning up after selfish people. And she retorted that it's men, like selfish men specifically. And he refused to give her that. He's like, hashtag not all men. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And she says, like, the, the fact of the matter is that it's not just criminals in costumes that are constantly disappointing us. It's the men that we let into our hearts. It's the men that we trust and love. And so now she she thinks of herself as trying to clean up the mess that Oliver made of her life. And so once she has beaten the criminal into submission, she leaves the apartment telling the woman like, you disappear and you find yourself a good man. And good men are men who do their own dishes. (laughs) Right. So she goes back to that sweet scene and she is now equating Oliver Queen. As not a good man. Exactly. For Dinah, Oliver not doing his own dishes is indicative of this overall pattern of selfishness, which included repeated acts of infidelity. So in her mind, a functional relationship is I do my own dishes and you do your own dishes. But that's not the absolute truth either. That's all that's not how relationships go. Like burdens have to be shared and she has to get to that place. But it is true. It is a connective bit of tissue between this Dinah and the Dinah that we did see in the Longbow Hunters who wants to go and do her vigilante crime stuff in Seattle apart from Green Arrow's vigilante crime stuff. Because Oliver is brash and disruptive. And when you invite Oliver along, that means that he's going to do it his own way, regardless of your feelings. There is a massive wall of distrust between them. And that's always kind of been there even in those Justice League of America comics that we saw back with Denny O'Neill and then the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams stuff. Like, distrust is part of their dynamic. And now that Oliver is gone, the only person she can hold accountable for that is herself. Where, like, that's why I'm saying she needs to get to a place of forgiveness of her her own choices. I mean, I, I was never disagreeing with that. I agree with that. But, like, I don't know why I keep having this argument because, like, Oliver Queen does come back and it does change everything. But what we have in this scene in particular is two different arguments. And since our love expert is Megan Lundgren, I'd like to take the opportunity to use the four steps. First, with the dishes argument and then with the semantics argument. So, Brad, how how about you take the dishes and then I'll take the semantics? All right. So, just to remind you, the four steps are name the vulnerable emotion, call out the coping mechanism you want to use, then 
name what's true about the situation, and then respond, don't react. All right. So, so with the dishes argument, I'm Dinah. Yes. And the emotion I am feeling when you want me to do the dishes, Oliver, is disrespected, feeling unequal. Mm -hmm. That doesn't feel good. And that causes me to want to lash out and blame you. Um, but what is actually true is that you do want to build a life with me in Sherwood Florist. Um, and there are other ways in which you don't treat me like a servant. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I got to respond. Yeah, so I would probably just like, you know, finish off that little paragraph by saying like, I would really love to establish some chores. Yeah. We need to establish some chores. And that's something that we did early on in our marriage because you are like Oliver. You don't like to do the dishes. I get really skeeved out <laughs> by dirty dishes. Right. I do. And it makes me feel like it can really put me in a, like a yucky place. <laughs> that's right. That's but, right. But I think that like, um, but you tend to make the meals. Mm -hmm. And so so when you make the meals, then I do the dishes afterwards. I think that she does. She is bucking up against a stereotype. Like, what does me doing the dishes stand for mm -hmm. in our relationship? Like, as a symbol. But Oliver is not seeing it as a symbol in this instance, I don't think. I think he's just seeing it like dishes are yucky. Well, and, but, but at the same time, I think it's stated flat out that Oliver Queen is a man with a brain mm -hmm. rooted in past norms, right? Yeah. Like he does see himself as the man of the household. You know, he dresses in a Robin Hood <laughs> costume, right? Like he is a bit of an old fogey and he holds on to some old fogey concepts. I, I And I think that if they had more open conversations about their principles, they would influence each other more mm, because mm. we've seen them prioritize being together over so many other things. They just, they, like we said in the last episode with them, like they just need to have a couple of tough conversations and then see where they land. Yeah, yeah. and the, 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 pro the problem that we see even in this storyline is that there's all because they're vigilantes and they're superheroes, there's always something to distract them mm -hmm. and to halt the actual conversation from happening. Okay, so now I'm gonna do the semantics argument. Okay, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you as if you're Oliver. Oliver. Okay. Yep. Oliver, when we have these debates about principles and I disagree with you and then you just reject that flat out, like what I feel is ineffective and disrespected and unacknowledged. And it makes me want to withdraw from you. I'm tempted to go sleep in the separate bedroom. But the fact of the matter is, I know that you love me and you enjoy having these conversations about principles. I just wish that when we were having these conversations, you would um, maybe empathize with me a little bit more and acknowledge that like perhaps there are ways where it is 
harder. It is harder for me as like a female vigilante and that and that I have my own perspective that you might not have. Yeah, okay. So does my, Megan Lundgren in her book, does she talk about when you should have these conversations? Because if if you have this conversation in the heat of battle, it, like right at the moment of the dishes argument, right? Like if Dinah had not succumbed to the cunnilingus, right? <laughs> if she, you know, let's, let's have this conversation right now about the dishes. You know, you're also putting Oliver on the defense and he is the type of guy who becomes very like, you know, defensive, like, whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. And then when you get on the defensive, you then, you counter with some offensive of your own. Like does, does Megan Lundgren talk about when is the right time to have such an honest conversation like that? I'm going to be honest with you. Not really. Okay. Just because like this, um, her book is very much in a digest form of like, here's just like, I'm just dumping out my toolkit and here are a whole bunch of options. Mm -hmm. But I do think in a relationship you do have to like pick and choose your battles and, and some some arguments are worth a flare up of emotion and some of them are not. I think it just goes back to regulating, mm -hmm. like going like, I agree to regulate my emotions so that we can have a conversation. You agree to regulate your emotions. Like, I don't think that, like, I don't think that a couple should have the force, like one one member of a couple should be armed with the four steps and the other person not know what <laughs> what is happening. Right, right, right. Like, so now that we've been talking about the four steps, if we were to have this issue come up, let, I mean, let's stick with our dishes. Let's say I don't do the dishes mm -hmm. and you come in and you see a giant pile and you get a little perturbed. You would then come to me with my understanding of the steps, but also you would come to me going like, you know, obviously we love each other, mm -hmm. you know, like Brad, I love you. Yeah. Right. But this is how I'm feeling right now because of the dishes situation that you're ignoring. Yeah. Yeah. And then I wouldn't be so like, Oh, I, yeah. I, because you would see it coming from a mile away. Like Lisa is regulating her emotions. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You know, I don't, I, I don't think Dinah and Ollie are necessarily there at that moment because they haven't been having those serious conversations. They haven't been reading these self-help books, but also, I mean, he's got a lot more going on right now because he is back from the dead. And when we do see Oliver Queen again, uh, he's been back for a little while. He's like the hobo green arrow. He's making boxing glove arrows out of aluminum Beer cans. cans. Yeah. yeah, like it, I love this look and I wish the comic like hung out with this hobo green arrow for a little bit longer. I would love to revisit this period in time where he's like in between uh, stages of knowing. I, and like, can we talk now about who this green arrow is sure because he doesn't quite understand what's going on he obviously knows something's up things don't look the way they used to you know the world has changed and he's confused by it but he's also not like investigating it too much but what we come to learn is that this oliver queen is not the oliver queen who died this oliver queen 
is an Oliver Queen that came before the longbow hunters even existed. This is the Oliver Queen from the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams run, where he was hanging out with Hal Jordan, the Green Lantern. Mike Grell hasn't sullied this Oliver Queen yet. There's also been this kind of cushion of safety placed around him by Stanley Dover, (laughs) who was rescued by Hobo Green Arrow, and he's kind of taken his hero under his wing, and he's kind of in his home, got rid of any technology that would indicate, like, that... Green Arrow is displaced in time. Like he, it, it is weird that Stanley, and we learn why like Stanley is doing this, but initially when you're reading this comic, you're like, well, why is he being so overly protective like, not to confuse Oliver with the time that he is existing in? I think that he's using like amnesia logic or like sleepwalker logic where it's just like, well, they can't be faced with the truth all at once. I mean, we can spoil it now. We've all read this comic, but like Stanley is a nefarious individual. He is, but he does a really good job of couching his intentions of like, clearly there's something wrong with Green Arrow and we need to get to the bottom of it. But in the meantime, he's doing all of this good with his trick arrows, like, you know, beating up pimps and um, shaming congressmen. <laughs> right, right. And and rescuing teenage prostitutes. Mia is introduced in the Quiver Run, and she becomes a significant Green Arrow character going forward. But Stanley Dover sells himself as this, like, independently wealthy guy who now sees Green Arrow as this opportunity to do good in the world. And and Green Arrow doesn't seem to have any problems with being a kept man. Right. And um, it's actually the the next moment I want to talk about is a conversation that they have right after Stanley Dover has made him a delicious filet mignon dinner. And Green Arrow makes a joke like, hey, do you also do dishes? Because if you do, I'm going to have to marry you. And Stanley goes on to say like, oh, well, you're too too young for me. You're not my type. And they have this kind of brief conversation about Stanley Dover being a gay man. Yeah, and like, okay, so I, you know, I love Kevin Smith. I have a great time with this comic book, but we also have to acknowledge that there are a lot of problems Mm -hmm. with the language in this comic book. And there's a lot of homophobia in this comic. There's so much gay panic and it's all done under this kind of like nudge, nudge, wink, wink comedy. Yeah, it's done under the umbrella of joking, but which is a very like 90s way of thinking, and it doesn't make it like not inappropriate. And gross. It's gross. Yeah. And there are at times where it's like it's it's unforgivable some of the stuff that Kevin Smith does in this book. Mm-hmm. Uh and, particularly with Stanley Dover. And, and with Mia. And right? Mia too, and, yeah. You know, because Mia is a 15-year-old girl, which they keep talking about over and over. She's 15, she's 15. But Kevin Smith can't help but like throw all this sexual innuendo between her and Oliver and her and Connor. It's it's gross. It's really, really awkward. So yeah, Quiver has all the same cringe that you experience when you revisit Clerks or Mallrats. It's very much a product of its time. And perhaps Kevin Smith was trying to like indicate that 
the Green Arrow, he's an old fashioned guy. He's maybe a little backward looking, but then the direction of Stanley Dover's character, yeah. where he ultimately turns out to be the villain of the story and his, his presenting himself as gay to Oliver was a ruse and he was doing it to manipulate him. Right, which just highlights how incredibly icky and disgusting this characterization is. I just really think that Kevin Smith in that way is very boneheaded about um, how we might think of him as a writer going like, oh, Kevin Smith, he's just joking. We know that he is, you know, kind at heart. That might very well be true, but that also doesn't make the the exact the ex like it doesn't make everything that he does okay you know well he's a prisoner of his own cisgender and straight white maleness right and he fails himself when he assumes the point of view of others i think that kevin smith thinks that he's being progressive and just like failing at it which is actually kind of all folded into the history of Green Arrow. Right. You could say the same thing about Mike Grell. You could say the same thing about Daddy O'Neill. You could say that so many things about so many cisgendered straight white dudes. And that's why we need more perspectives creating comics. Amen. But why did we bring up this conversation between Stanley and Oliver? Because I do think that Oliver says some revelatory things about the way that he views Black Canary, views Dinah. So um, Stanley Dover asks if any of his super friends have been reaching out to him at all. And right. he's like, no, thank God, because they are so annoying. <laughs> and he's like, well, what about uh, Black Canary? And he replies like, nah, she's a liberated woman <laughs> who can more than take care of herself. She's her mother's daughter. And odds are she's probably really deep underground. And there are times where I don't, hear from her for weeks at a time. And Stanley goes like, don't you ever worry about her? She's doing such a dangerous job. And he and Oliver replies, she should worry about me. <laughs> She's the one with superpowers. You should hear her sonic scream. It's insane. So we think about the way that Dinah looks back at their relationship and like, you know, Oliver didn't respect me. He didn't see me as power, powerful. He saw me as his servant. That's not the whole truth because he did acknowledge that she had powers that he did not have. I, I think we also hear a little bit about her tendency towards separateness that he she needs to be able to remove herself from a situation and she sees vigilantism kind of like dishes where she's like, I clean my dishes and you clean your dishes. Like we don't want to mix our responsibilities together so much because then I'm going to lose my autonomy. I'm not going to be able to live my own life and make my own choices. And I think that we see here that he's been, he he feels a little bit punished and a little bit rebuffed by him not being able to reach out to her. I think that she's made her point very clear that when they are together, 
it's because she's allowing it to happen and she can take herself out of the situation anytime she wants. But again, this Ollie is basing that knowledge on a Dinah that no longer exists. That is true. And a Dinah, as far as he knows, he's still in a relationship with. Right. They haven't had any kind of major falling out. They're still in kind of like a hot and heavy will they won't they place in his mind. So for the next several issues, much of the story is about Oliver discovering that massive gap in time that exists between his memory and when he actually died, according to the rest of the world. And he has a scuffle with Black Manta, which leads to an encounter with Aquaman, which leads to a reunion with the Justice League. And they're all like, how are you alive? And... Who's going to tell Dinah? Yeah, and who's going to tell Dinah? And guess what? Uh, they don't have to worry about that because Oracle, Barbara Gordon, former Batgirl, fellow bird of prey to Dinah Lance, lets her know, hey, I saw Green Arrow tussling with Aquaman on the news. And she's like, Connor's back in the game? Good for him! Not so fast, not Connor. Ollie. And she looks shocked and surprised, and then she teams up with Roy to go find him. And she does on the grounds of the Queen Estate. And guess what? Batman's there. And he took Oliver to the estate because he wanted Oliver's memory to be jogged. But what he should have really been worried about was Etrigan the demon. And this is just not a character you expect to find in a Green Arrow comic. He's a character that you find in Swamp Thing and Sandman <laughs> and Constantine. Uh, but he doesn't belong here on the Queen Estate. And he's certainly a shock to Batman and Oliver, but the Emerald Archer and the Dark Knight hold their own against Etrigan, and it's actually Oliver who takes down the demon by using one of his sudsy arrows. See, trick arrows are very handy. Take that, Mike Grell, but Etrigan has no choice but to revert back to Jason Blood, and we learn from Blood that Oliver may be something called a hollow. But before they can get to the bottom of that, Roy and Dinah appear from the shadows and Roy and Oliver get to have their reunion. And then when Oliver sees Dinah, he says, well, 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 long time no see, pretty bird. And she, her eyes well up with tears and she says, my God, it is you. And he begins to speak, but then she interrupts him with this passionate kiss. And what I think is so singular about this moment is that for Oliver, he did just see her a few weeks ago. Right. They were hot and heavy. They were having this wonderful relationship that was just heating up. But for her, she knows that he has this kind of amnesia thing going on. She doesn't understand it quite completely but she has this moment to reunite with an Oliver that she still loved and an Oliver that had never broken her heart. So I think when she says it is you in that moment, she means it is you, the one that I lost to heartache and betrayal. And the first time I read this scene, like I'm already choking up, <laughs> like the first time I read this scene, like my heart just welled up, 
my eyes welled up with tears and I just wept because like there are so many things in your past where you go like, if I could just put a pin in that thing and relive that moment, savor that moment one more time. It was perfect before it was broken. Exactly. Of course, Roy and Batman are still just standing (laughs) there and Roy goes like, well, that went better than I thought. And Batman goes, Dinah is a complex woman. I wouldn't necessarily assume all's been forgiven yet. Which I'm just like, wow, what a great detective you are, Batman. Cracked another one. Later on the Bat plane, they begin arguing because Dinah is pop quizzing Green Arrow about his memory. Like, what about Seattle? What about Marianne? And they get into an argument about whether she gets to feel hurt about things he hasn't done yet. And so she tries to go into her coping strategy of turning her body away from him, and he tries to give an apology, and she accuses him of ducking accountability, which is something that she accuses him of often. And then he tries to put moves on her and tries to romance her. Yeah, he he does the dishes thing. Exactly. So if we go back to the coping mechanisms that uh, that Megan Lundgren mentioned earlier, I think he is trying he just he's just trying to take control of the situation. Like she can't be mad at me anymore if we're embracing. She can't be mad at me anymore if she's in love with me. But I think that if Dinah really sat with herself and thought about what exactly she wants out of that Oliver in that moment, I think she just wants it acknowledged that being in a relationship with Oliver was hard and had a lot of challenges. And to have someone say that's a moot point is hurtful to her because she has built her entire persona, current persona on I was treated wrongly and I've now seen the truth about men and I'm going to take that knowledge into my vigilantism. The problem for her, what complicates this issue is that the Oliver in front of her is not the Oliver that wronged her. This is an Oliver from the Green Lantern, Green Arrow days when their relationship was new and burgeoning. This is not the Oliver who, you know, offended her and did her wrong. And as we learn in a few moments, this Oliver is the hollow that Etrigan was after. He is an Oliver Queen without a soul. What? Yes, this is the first justified case of gaslighting. She's like, <laughs> this is the way that it happened. And he's like, well, it didn't happen that way for me. <laughs> Literally. And isn't this a man's fantasy? Uh, the ability <laughs> to tell a woman, like, your narrative does not count. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, okay, so they do this ceremony with Etrigan and all these demons start attacking and there's this battle and it looks like, This Oliver is killed again, but he's actually pulled out of our realm and into 
limbo heavenly realm by the specter, which is now Hal Jordan, the vengeance spirit. And we learn what went down after final night. We learn that it was Hal Jordan who in a moment of agony as parallax plucked a particle of Oliver Queen off of Superman's suit. And that's why the comic starts with that conversation between Superman and Batman and Superman going like, oh, I felt something tiny on me. It wasn't the Atom. No, it was Hal Jordan saying, give me some of that Oliver Queen DNA and let me rebuild Oliver Queen from scratch, but let me rebuild him to the point where I loved him most during the Green Lantern, Green Arrow period. It's also the period where Green Arrow loved himself the most. Yes. Because he did specifically ask when he was resurrected to be resurrected before the Longbow Hunters. Right, right, right. So Oliver Queen has a say in this action from Hal Jordan because Hal Jordan went to Oliver Queen in heaven and said, this is what I want to do. And Oliver Queen's like, yeah, yeah, you can resurrect me, but leave me here. Leave my soul hanging out in heaven because I'm at peace. I don't want to go back. So what is this Oliver Queen that's hanging out in Quiver? Just like, like that's the title. He's just the Quiver. Oh, oh, I did not pick up on that. Oh, really? Yeah. Because the archer is in heaven. The right. real Oliver Queen is in heaven, chillaxing uh, with Martin Luther King Jr. and Lincoln and Mahatma Gandhi and some guy eating a burger who I think, <laughs> like, is that Dave Thomas? I'm not sure. Oh, and then like Robin swings by. So the Emerald Archer, the archer himself is in heaven enjoying himself and this like automaton is what we've been watching. Yeah, he's like a meat android. Like he's like all of the, I guess, electrical currencies and organs and everything that is is Oliver Queen except for the soul. But obviously he has free will. Mm-hmm. You know, he he he, he has, has desires. He has desires. He has sentience. I guess he doesn't remember what having a soul felt like because he can't tell the difference. He's really only told that he doesn't have a soul. And then because the specter brings him up into heaven to have an actual conversation with the real quote unquote Oliver Queen, he sees, oh, I guess that's actually the real me. Well, what am I? And like, what a terrifying existential crisis that I think could have been explored for years to come. Uh, sadly, that doesn't happen. Uh, but but like I, like it's a fascinating, like just rich concept that then Black Canary has to deal with, and it's got to be agonizing for her. There is a little point in their conversation that I want to. Uh, kind of zoom in on the conversation between Hal and Oliver or Oliver and Oliver between Oliver and Oliver, because now we have a conversation between Oliver and essentially his past self and his past future. self. Oh, 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 you mean like future? How do we differentiate between the two Olivers? There's, I guess we say there's soul Oliver in my notes. Uh The way I differentiated is Oliver who is resurrected is Oliver Queen. And then the Oliver that's in heaven is Ollie Ollie. And okay. the reason I do that is that's how Hel- how Hal Jordan differentiates. Right, right, he right. He goes like, no, that wasn't Ollie. That was Ollie Ollie. Okay, all right. So Ollie Ollie is heaven Ollie. And then Oliver is 
the one that is in Quiver, the star of Quiver. Okay. So um, Ollie Ollie has the chance to rationalize to Oliver why he picked that version of himself. And he says, I was trying to spare you the grief of being me. Like he goes on to say, like, I had a good life, friends, love, adventures, and the satisfaction of knowing that I was one of the good guys. And then after I took that life, in um oh yeah the flash comic yeah yeah or is it a justice league i can't remember go back to our first episode (laughs) and uh he he never had peace again so i asked i asked how to bring you back in that best time of my life yeah so there's a shame like this this all the ollie has shame for his actions but he gets to be in heaven (laughs) like enjoying heaven while this best version of himself is down on earth representing him. Right. Right. So he's kind of just like, he's um, kind of outsourced his redemption. (laughs) Right, right, right. So it's like all of the redemption, none of the inconvenience of having to be there for it, which like- Is the most green arrow move. (laughs) Exactly. It's another instance of him ducking accountability. Just like Black Canary said. And then when Hal gives him the option of like, well, now your representative is walking around with it a soul. Are you okay with that? And Oliver is like, Uh, yes, as per her original (laughs) agreement. Like, it's not my fault that I agreed to your dumb idea. And... Uh, Hal goes like, well, I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And like, so now it seems necessary for you to re-embody your body. And he he tells tells Oliver, like, you're skirting your your responsibilities. And uh, he says, that's classic Ollie. Right. So classic Ollie is a guy who wants the adventure who wants the heroism, who wants to be the good guy, but without any of the actual um, decision-making in there, without all of the hard part of choosing to be good over choosing to tend to his basest needs, which is comfort, sex, um, relaxation, you know, like that kind of thing. This stuff is so good. Like when we got to this issue... Like, I think I had read Quiver when it came out, but maybe I never read it to this point because, like, the Ollie Ollie situation blew my mind. It came out of nowhere for you. Me too. And, like, I just, I love it so much. And then poor Dinah, like, while they're all trying to figure out, like, where did Ollie go? Did Ollie just die again? She's getting, like, the moves put on her by the demon. Yeah. And it's, like, it's. Like, it's such a Kevin Smith thing. Like, oh, I got, like, this blonde girl in front of me. I got to make my move. I'm the demon. And 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 then then he, Oliver, you know, Dinah, like, takes care of the demon pretty quickly. Uh, but then Oliver returns and has to be like, yes, yeah, so um, uh, this is weird. But this is what's going on. Uh, I'm up in heaven and I'm here. What am I? So, like... To your original point that Oliver returning is a life raft okay, and, uh-huh, and the uh-huh. redemption of, of Dinah, I think that, like, each time she is about to say, like, I'm done with Ollie. He's treating me poorly. He dies and comes back. Right. Which gives him, like, the hard reset 
on their relationship because he's like, I've had this huge mind blowing experience. So he's getting all the satisfaction. She's getting none. So she, she's not allowed to make progress because she keeps going like, well, I'd rather Oliver be here being classic Ollie skirting his responsibilities than him being dead. Right, right, right. And so she, he, so he, He's less of a life raft for her and more of like an anchor around her neck. Exactly. Oh, man, Lisa. But the problem with that is that at the end of this storyline, when Quiver wraps up, Oliver or Ollie Ollie does return into his Quiver. He does come back and the two Olivers are joined into one. So going forward from that point, she does have the Oliver Queen that she can confront and say, this is what you did to me. But instead of doing that, he goes like, hey, let's clean slate it. He still wants to clean let's slate. Let's start dating again. Yeah. I'll date by following your boundaries and respecting your experience. He wants it on his terms still. But what ultimately ends up happening is they start their relationship on and on and off again relationship in the exact same fashion that they've done before. Yeah, so she never gets her like recognition of the hardship that she's been through, which is what she really wants. And Kevin Smith leaves, never letting that to happen. And the way that Kevin Smith wraps up his entire time on Green Arrow is with this introduction of onomatopoeia, which is just another distraction from the conversation they need to be having. And another opportunity for her to think that he is dying. Yeah, 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 okay. And we should also mention that we learn that Stanley Dover, the reason he has created this relationship with Oliver is because he wants the hollow so he can put himself into, into the hollow because for years he's been trying to have this relationship with this monster that connected or bonded with his grandson. And we have this entire issue that ties into Neil Gaiman's Sandman to the first issue of Sandman, which we're, we're covering on our Patreon. And it was like a real shock to see Morpheus in this book. Uh, and, and we learned that like Stanley, he, he learned of Roderick Burgess and what he was doing by capturing death or actually capturing dream. And he's like, well, I think I can work those same black magics. I want, I want this monster. And somehow he becomes aware of the hollow situation later on in his life. I think that because Oliver Queen rescued him and right. he was yes. new. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so when he finds Oliver Queen, he then, you know, figures out that this guy has no soul and he's the perfect vessel for me to fall into. So then I can bond as Oliver with this monster that I've adored my entire life or that I've lusted after. And this Stanley and his monster is a classic DC comedy comic, which I had never heard of until I did a little research. So Kevin Smith is diving into everything he loves. He, he's diving into Neil Gaiman comics. He's diving into Alan Moore comics. And now he's diving into Stanley and his monster, like the most obscure comic book, to, and wrapping it all into his Green Arrow storyline. And I love all of that, but man, is it weird. Yeah, I, I think it uh, all comes together pretty brilliantly. The only issue to me is 
how the status is once again quoted. Yeah. And now he's just the same Oliver Queen from the Longbow Hunters who doesn't use trick arrows anymore. Yeah, so Ollie Ollie makes the decision to leave heaven and return into his body, which effectively erases the quiver Oliver Queen that we've been following. I find that very upsetting. I'm really irritated by that. I think it's such a wasted opportunity for this character going forward, trying to discover like, what am I as a, you know, a supposedly soulless being? Um, and so to then just have the OG Oliver Queen take over, it just, it's so neat and tidy. I think that it could have been like the, the writers that followed could have uh, faced the continuity a little bit more aggressively and thought about, okay, now he has two timelines in his brain, his timeline in heaven and his timeline on earth as a hollow. Like how does an individual reckon with that? Well, I can tell you, Lisa, I have read, I followed this up immediately with Brad Meltzer's Archer's Quest and they don't reconcile with those two timelines at all. It is the, like he is referencing longbow hunter memories in the next arc as if the quiver stuff never happened. And I just think that is like such a shame. It's such a bummer. It's such a bummer because, man, what a crazy, dramatically interesting character to be this quiver Oliver Queen and to, you know, continue to have a relationship with Black Canary. I think there is so much more that could have been explored. And I do have to wonder, like, is this status quo uh, an editorial decision? Does like DC say like, no, you have to bring back Oliver Queen as we knew him when he left? Or is this something more purposeful, driven by Kevin Smith's own ideas of souls and his Catholicism? You know, this is the guy who grappled with all that stuff in dogma just a few years earlier. Brad and I were talking about this on our walk yesterday, but in Catholicism, the belief is that your soul and your body are wanting of each other. Like, so the idea is like you die and your body is buried and your soul goes to heaven. But then when Christ returns for the second coming and the rapture happens, the redeemed souls are going to return to their bodies (laughs) and their bodies will be in a glorified form. And that is the ultimate goal of our human existence is to like return back to our bodies. To put on an old sock. Yeah, I know. (laughs) We were joking about like, why would you even want that? No thanks. Yeah, after like free balling it in heaven, (laughs) just bouncing around uncontained. And then they're like, guess what? It's the day we've all been waiting for. Go back in that thing. Like, no, thank you. I don't want that sack. But like, I guess like the, I like, What I have a hard time reconciling with myself is this idea that the Oliver Queen that was resurrected was somehow incomplete. Yeah, that's what that's what I object to. Like I I I, like personally, I find it um, offensive that this Oliver Queen that we were spending the majority of our time with in the Quiver storyline is not a real being. Doesn't of some have kind. a right to exist. Yeah. But but that's where things get weird because in this story, from what we can tell, 
The only difference between a body without a soul and a body with a soul is memories. And yeah. that can't like that can't be the whole truth. But like but again like but that the the quiver Oliver he had memories. He had. He just had memories to a certain point. It, but that. But like that's the only difference between Oliver and Ollie. Ollie is Ollie. Ollie remembers Longbow Hunters, and Oliver does not. Right. So like, is that it? Is that all? All the human soul is is like a really faithful record to the life that was lived. So I feel like if the comic could continue with the quiver Ollie we could have like a very philosophical saga. Yeah. And we're just, we're denied that by this ending. I love, Brad did like a hypothetical pitch to me of what if the status was not quote, and Oliver Queen becomes like a Hellboy storyline where he's facing one demon after the other. And I'm like, ooh, I would read like, the, yeah, I would read the hell out of that comic. What does it mean to be a human, right? What, yeah. what does it mean to have a soul? Like, man, I want to read that comic. But... We are in session. Yes, yes, that yes. That comic yes. did not happen. I know. <laughs> so we we just have to move on, Brad. Yeah, yeah. So where does that leave Dinah and Ollie at the end of Quiver? They are dating once again, and they're both all of those same insecurities are popping up and they're repeating those same patterns. So what I would encourage them to do from this point on is go like, we have gotten a fourth chance at this relationship. So let's do the things that, do the opposite of the things that didn't work before. Instead of having these emotional flare-ups and going into our coping mechanisms and just skirting the responsibility of making their relationship actually function, mm. they should muscle their way through these tough conversations so that they can finally reach a place where they share principles and they have a de more defined us-ness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, gosh, I had so much fun with this comic book. Like, it has its issues, certainly, but of the three storylines we've covered, I think that this has been the most rich and interesting of the bunch, and it leaves them in a really odd place that I'm excited to continue into our next and final uh, session episode. So that takes us into our moment of reflection. So do you have any takeaways from our conversation about Black Canary and Green Arrow or from Megan Lundgren and the four steps that you're going to apply to our relationship? Well, you know that I do, Lisa. Like sticking first with Green Arrow and Black Canary, you know, this storyline ends with more distractions from their core issues. So I'm still waiting for them to have like a heart to heart, sit down, let's really boil down what is, what we love about each other. Like we love each other, we love being together, but there are these wounds that need to be tended to. Uh, and, and clearly Dinah needs to address with Ollie these sins that he committed to their relationship. Right, the infidelities. And I think that sh one of her strong principles is that there is gender disparity. Yeah. And there are ways that it is harder to be a, a white woman than it is to be a white man. Yes. You know? Yeah. yeah. And I think that him repeatedly dismissing that major principle of hers makes her feel 
rejected. Yeah, it makes him look like a scumbag. Like, mm -hmm. he really needs to work on himself. Oliver has a lot to do, a lot of work, if he wants to truly be in a relationship with Dinah Lance. Now, on the Megan Lundgren thing, I have found that these steps have been incredibly helpful, and we've actually used them in practice during the recording of this episode. Uh, listeners, hopefully you couldn't tell where we had a break in this episode, but it occurred when I got frustrated with Lisa because I felt like she was not um, retelling the narrative of uh, the story properly. And I was like, no, you're incorrect. And I kind of like snapped at her, which was rude mm -hmm. and uh, thoughtless. And and it, we had to stop. We had to have a conversation. And we ha actually, we had an argument. It's It boiled into an argument. We both got really mad at each other. And then, you know, we ha like I had the thought that, well, look, we're talking about these steps we're talking about naming the emotion. Yeah, address the emotion rather than the uh, actions. So I pulled, like on a notepad, I pulled the notepad in front of me and I said, let's do these steps right now. And this is the first time we've ever had an argument while recording where we then used the steps to address the argument that we were having. And damn it, I thought they worked tremendously well. It did diffuse the emotionality so we could get to the bottom of what like what our emotions were in that moment and that our emotions were not wrong like yes our actions were extremely inconsiderate of each other but the emotions that each other was having were valid and deserved being addressed so i was able to name the emotion that i was feeling of being um dismissed mm -hmm. and feeling unrecognized by my partner mm -hmm. and then i was able to call out myself and the using like um uh, the the coping mechanism that I was using to attack Lisa. You know, I was feeling this way, so I lunged out. Yeah, you blamed. I blamed Lisa. And then, you know, what is actually true? Well, we're both trying to record a podcast. We want it to be so good. We want it to be so good. We love each other. Nothing's getting in the way of that. So let's just like, okay, let's take a moment. Uh -huh. And there we go. And then let's, you know, respond to what I am feeling, the heat that I was feeling. Yeah. And it... It worked. It, it really did work. And I do suggest that you trying it in your everyday life. I wouldn't, like we said early in our conversation, I wouldn't just spring this on my partner without them being fully yeah, knowledgeable aware. of yeah. what the four steps are. Because I think that uh, having the four steps and not sharing them is manipulative is what I think. Well, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. And so because we're both recording this podcast, we're both talking about these steps. Like it was just... I was proud of myself to go like, hold on, let, let's let use this. We ha now have a new tool in yes. our relationship quiver that yes. we are going to reach back to often. Yeah, so I think that this episode and this love expert uh, has been incredibly helpful to my own life. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm giving a big thumbs up on the four steps. Yeah, me too. I feel like I do have to mention that Megan Lundgren, though she uses the four steps, she did not invent them. Invent them. Right. They came from the couple's Hargreaves. It's a a, a married couple. Uh, one's a psychologist. One's a lumft. Lumft. Um, so uh, we are going to have to use them. Yeah. As experts in the future. Yeah. Um, uh, anything else that 
you you want to address what you're taking away from this episode and this conversation? I just have one little thing to add, and that's sometimes you go over the four steps for yourself to present them to your partner, and it actually resolves the conflict before you even have to bring it up. Mm. Like, so my example is yesterday you um, were sitting in the car waiting for me to finish work and you had left the lights on and the battery died because the battery is old. It needed to be replaced. This is the second time in one week. No, no. It happened on a Sunday and then a the following Sunday, oh, so it was yeah. technically a new week. Okay. Um, but you were very mad at yourself for making the same mistake twice. Grumpy. And so we had to wait for the roadside assistance to come and help us, and you were just, like, beating up on yourself and really shaming yourself. And um, and I was going like, hey, perk up. Hey, it's not so bad. Things happen. And you were like, no, I will not be comforted in this situation. <laughs> and so, like... Um, there have been situations in the past when you've gone into grumpy Brad mode and I then use that as an opportunity to start an argument like, hey, I'm cheering you up and you're not being receptive to me cheering you up. And so I started the four steps in my head of like, hey, you know, Brad, when you get into grump mode, um, sometimes I feel powerless because I can't change your mood and my temptation is to blame you. But then I get to this step. But the truth is your grumpy mood is not going to be forever. And (laughs) this issue with the battery is going to be resolved. So in actuality, this is not a problem. Yeah, yeah. Brad can have his mood. And so I didn't add to the tension of the situation of making it about me being mad about him being grumpy. Yeah, yeah. And it was resolved. We got a new battery. AAA helped us out. It all got resolved way quicker than Brad's original estimation. But it is one of the reasons, Lisa, why this episode took a little longer to record because we were stuck out there forever. (laughs) We did start about 45 to an hour late later than we planned, which yeah. is fine. It yeah. worked out fine. And it's fine. It's fine. You're all enjoying this episode right now. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think that's a good idea. I think that's something I had not considered where I can do the four steps without my partner and naming the emotion. And then, you know, I, I like, I, I think, I think that's, that's, I'm happy to hear that. And maybe I should start doing that as an exercise myself. But the long and short of it is like this episode, the the quiver episode turned out to be a pretty significant one for Brad and Lisa. Well, it's definitely one of those best case scenarios where we liked the comic book, we empathize with the couple, and we have a new strategy for yeah. bettering our relationship. I mean... It doesn't get better than this. Yeah. And next week, we are going to conclude our conversation regarding Oliver Queen and Dinah Lance by jumping into the Green Arrow Black Canary wedding special, which will then lead into the Green Arrow Black Canary series, the first four issues entitled Dead Again. Again? Yes, Lisa, but maybe not in the way that you're expecting. I'm very excited for you to read this storyline. It's written by Judd Winnick. It's illustrated by Cliff Chang, or actually the 
the wedding special is illustrated by Amanda Connor, who yeah. we love. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a great way to say goodbye to this couple for now. And I say for now because, like, I really have enjoyed this couple and I would like to revisit them because there's so many storylines. And if we, uh, if our pattern is correct, they're never going to resolve their issues. So just <laughs> correct, bottomless yeah. content with them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so, okay, I think that's going to do it. Okay, great, because I need to pop into heaven for a sec and convince my soul to return back into my body. Yes, Brad, I am a hollow. Oh, no. Where my soul should be is just plugs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean like plugs, like we're going to plug some we gotta stuff? We got to promote some, some things. I was very confused for a second there, Lisa. Uh, yes, we have plugs. We have <laughs> lots of plugs. Uh, Lisa, you are going to be on the next episode of Capes on the Couch performing as Squirrel Girl. That's right. Um, I would love to call it acting, but it turns out that me and, and Doreen have the exact same vocal inflection. Yes, yeah. Uh, so I'll have links in the show notes to their feed. So be on the watch because I've listened to it. It's adorable. You've listened to my side. I've, yeah, I've listened to your side. It's adorable. I love it. You are doing some solid acting there, Why, Lisa. thank you. Also, please remember to jump on over to comicbookcouplescounseling.com. On the website, we've been having so many rad conversations with creators like Max Allen Collins, Olivia Stevens, Mark Sable, Corin Shadme. We're very proud of everything that we're doing over on the site, and we want to make sure that you guys are aware of it. Again, links in the show notes. And next weekend is Baltimore Comic Con. We will be attending. We will be bringing stickers. That's right. So if you see us, call us out. We will slap some in your hand. And we are actually having a conversation with writers Phil Falco and Kat Calamia about their comic Slice of Life. And we're going to put together like a Baltimore Comic Con episode and drop it into the main feed. It's going to be really fun. Yeah, super excited about that. Okay, but TikTok, Brad, <laughs> I need to get up to heaven Time may be infinite up there, but down here, we got stuff to do. So where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, mm. you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. Sandman issue by issue. We're about to record an episode on issue eight. Oh my goodness, death, death, death. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. So that is going to do it. Oh, coffee. Coffee maker said. coffee is ready.